0: morning everybody morning. Uh, thank you it's good to be with all of you guys again um, so I know i 've done this a couple of times lately at the beginning of sermons but given that we've moved into a new space and we 've been um, having some folks who are newer to our community joining us, I want to keep um, explaining things so that people don't feel confused so if you're new to revolution it's worth taking just a moment today to talk um, about our approach to this moment in our service to the to the teaching moment in our Sunday in our Sunday mornings. Um, there are a few quirks that you may have noticed that are worth clarifying about how we approach that here. Um, the first of those quirks is that every year at Revolution, we organize our preaching calendar for the whole year around a specific or central theme, which then uh, guides all the series that we choose to do and all the things that we, we, we choose to talk about. And that theme comes along with kind of a big question That's our question that we wanna wrestle with as a community throughout the year. And this year, the theme is uncertainty. That's our theme for the year. And the question is, why doesn't God just give us all the answers? What doesn't he just tell us? And over the last 10 months, what we've been uncovering is that God's focus is not on our agreement with him about the state of things or about who he is, God's focus is on our trust in him, about the way of things. Our trust in him about the way of things. And this is because God's kingdom, his way here in the world, turns out to be built on confidence. this is something that flows from relationships, not built on certainty, which is something that, that tends to isolate us when we feel we have it and tends to, not just isolate us, but kind of lock us into places of arrogance and stubbornness and pride. So, so that's quirk number one. We have these yearly themes. This year's theme is uncertainty. And then there's this other quirk, um, and that is that each year we also set out to tackle at least one longer book from the New Testament with our teaching time, something that's gonna take more than four or five weeks. In 2020, um, in the middle of a pandemic, and a series of sermons that probably no one heard, um, I talked about the book of Acts. So if you ever want to know more about the book of Acts, there are like 10 sermons on the internet um, for that. And then in 2021, last year, we looked at the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews. And this year, what we're looking at is the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark. But because we always want that long book we look at to interact with our theme, remember quirk one, those themes, we also choose to take that long book and break it in half so that we can study the first half of the book at the beginning of the year as we're getting introduced to our theme and then explore the second half of the book at the end of the year after we've been thinking about our theme for a while. You can tell that I was an English teacher for a long time at a moment like this, like this is way too much work. And it also assumes that everybody's here every week, which is like not a thing that you should ever assume about anything. So, anyways, nonetheless, the leadership team, who you met two of their members earlier, have permitted me this foolishness for a few years now. And so I'm going to keep doing it. Anyways, point is, this week, that is what we are doing. We are now returning to the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And we're returning to that with a, with a full year's worth of pondering and wrestling under our belt about uncertainty. We're doing that so that we can re-encounter here what Mark has to say about that temptation towards certainty and God's challenge to choose instead a confident relationship with him. It has turned out that Mark has worked out to be a great gospel for this project because, and. Acts and Hebrews were great, too. I'm not trying to say that that didn't work really well. It was an awesome plan. Way to go, preaching team, for like putting a good plan together. But Mark, very helpfully, actually has a pretty clear dividing line right in the middle of that. To remind ourselves of some of, some of the context here, Mark is the oldest gospel that we've got. But Mark is not the oldest document that we have in the New Testament. In fact, the oldest documents we have in the New Testament are all those letters, those letters between the early church leaders, Paul, Peter, etc., to those early church congregations as they're spreading throughout the world. And that makes sense as the church is growing, people are communicating, and the letters that are being passed between the churches get shared, and that's the sort of starting point of our New Testament canon. So how is it then that we get this story about Jesus after we have a church? Like in our minds, it seems like it should go the other way, right? Like let's get the Jesus story, then we'll build a church. Here we have a church, and then they get a Jesus story. And the answer to why we have things this way is that the Jesus story initially didn't spread through writing. It spread through people. That's the whole, the whole way, of, way of it. And it focused as it spread through people in the, in the first century on this one specific thing. It focused on a man from this little place called Galilee who claimed to be the son of God and claimed to be the Jewish Messiah who taught, who wandered around for a couple of years and taught about this inclusive, radically inclusive, upside down kingdom. That that guy ended up proving all of these wild claims about himself by willingly going to his death on a cross and then miraculously coming back from the dead. That's that's the Jesus story that's getting passed around through these communities. And that story becomes this anchor for worship. And more importantly, it becomes this anchor for hope, this hope in this death-defeating king. And this hope that this death-defeating king is, as he says, even now at this very moment, transforming the very way that power and life work in the world into that upside down kingdom. And even more, this like radical, crazy, death-defeating king says, even though he's gone now, he says that he's coming back. And he says that those who follow him will no longer be bound by death themselves. They'll no longer be any more bound by death than he is bound by death. And there's no early written record of that Jesus story for two really important reasons. First, we're in the first century and there aren't very many people that could read it. And second, that king's return is imminent, so why bother? What's the point of writing the story down? He's gonna be back in his second. So it it travels person to person through the first century in all of these early churches. And that's why we get letters before we get a gospel. But all of that changes in the year 64 AD. And it changes because Rome burns. And the emperor of Rome at the time, Nero, blames that fire on the cult of Roman Christians. And so suddenly, real persecution is coming to this new community of hopeful earthly kingdom defiers. And Christians, those same Christians that put their faith in a death-defeating savior, are themselves dying. And this causes a new worry to spread, in these early churches. People wanna know, is Jesus's kingdom really more powerful than Rome? And, And even more personally than that, can that Jesus really save me from my own end? Now Mark's gospel is written down and sent to those Christians in Rome as an answer to those specific questions. It is an effort to reassure them that the Jesus way, that the way that Jesus moved in the world always moved towards what the world would call defeat and humiliation and death. That's always the trajectory he was on. But Jesus was never a slave to fear. And the hope of resurrection then isn't about escaping this broken world, The hope of resurrection is about choosing to live in the real kingdom of God, the upside down kingdom of God right now with confidence that it is Rome that's gonna turn out to be the passing shadow and that God is gonna bring new life to all of those people who put their trust in him and in his way in the world. And so, That's a big setup, right? Like I promise we're getting actually to chapter 10 of Mark. It's coming. I like setups, but man, that was like a record. That was even for me. I have a former student who comes to our church sometimes and she'll remember that it was not unusual for me to sometimes have a class where like 45 minutes is a review and then we're like one new point, like right as the bell rings. It's my way. Anyway, so to get us back on track, in the first part of the series, way back in February, we looked at how chapters 1 through 9 explore this first question nagging those, those people around Jesus during the early days of his ministry. And then, of course, as they're reading over the shoulder of that testimony, those Roman Christians are also asking this question. And that question is, who is Jesus really? Who is this guy? Chapters 1 through 9, that's the question that dominates those chapters. Everybody wants to know who this guy is. And then that question is the question that gets answered right in the middle of the gospel in chapter 9 at this event that's known as the transfiguration. And in this moment, Jesus takes a couple of his disciples up with them on this mountain, and he reveals himself to them in his full, radiant, godly glory. Moses and Elijah show up just to really confirm that like this is the real deal. This is the Messiah. that's right in the middle in chapter nine. But now as we look at the back half of the story, what happens is the question turns from who is Jesus to what kind of a king will this man actually be? That becomes the question that we wrestle with, we're gonna wrestle with for the next five weeks. What kind of a king will Jesus be? If the transfiguration proves that he really is who he says he is, the fallout from that event centers on the disciples' confusion about what it means for the kind of God that can appear with Moses and Elijah like on a mountaintop to actually be walking around with them. What's gonna happen with that God? And they bring all of their predictable assumptions to the table in the back half of the book. Is this God who's revealed himself to be God gonna like give all of us superpowers? That's a question that they have right out of the gate. Is he gonna overthrow the government of Rome like suddenly with like lightning bolts from heaven? They wanna know that. Is he going to finally punish all those guilty people that have been getting away with doing bad stuff forever and ever? But you, you the reader, and the Roman Christians for whom this text is written, you know where the story's going to end, which creates this narrative tension here. God, that same God that appeared on the mountain to the disciples, is going to willingly walk to death at the hand of his own creation and then that death won't be able to hold it. So with that end in mind, what do we see here about what this Jesus, what this new king actually wants from his subjects? We know he's gonna choose a crazy path to power. What does he want from us? And as we read over those Roman Christian shoulders ourselves, what does he still want, not just from them, but from me and you sitting here? So, Let's pick up. You thought I was done when I made the joke about it, gang. No, I had more. I wrote that in as a, like, they are going to be tired of recap, so I need to pause and, like, pretend like I'm finished, and that'll buy me another three minutes. So, whew. Mark ten one. Jesus has come down from that mountain. He's revealed to be a God-man, and then he, quote, went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan, Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. I appreciate this. Nothing has changed. So he immediately sets out. The one thing that is different is that he sets out for the right place now. He sets out for the, the place that a king should set out for in the story. He's on his way now to Jerusalem, and he's going to be on his way to Jerusalem for the rest of Mark. But he hasn't changed. He's on a new trajectory, but he's still the same Jesus. He's a teacher first. So what's the first answer to the kind of king Jesus is going to be? Well, he's going to be kind of the same guy that he was. He's going to be a king who continues to make time for his people on his way to the throne. And that's something. Are any of you watching House of the Dragon? You don't, I know we, we already did Confession, so this isn't, this isn't about that. It kind of sucks, but I'm kind of into it. I don't know how I feel. Anyways, there's this famous quote by George R.R. R. Martin, who's the creator of that show, creator of Game of Thrones about how his work is influenced by the Lord of the Rings and by J.R.R. Tolkien. Martin says this about Tolkien. He says that Martin, he says, Martin says that Tolkien kind of pulls a happily ever after with the Lord of the Rings, with Aragorn, who's his protagonist, when Aragorn becomes king. And Martin points out that the thing Tolkien apparently doesn't seem interested in is that he never bothers to ask, what was Aragorn's tax policy going to be? And then he says he wrote all of his stuff like as an answer to that, which is a weird pitch for why you should read my book, like, (laughs) but whatever. Anyway, in a sense, this is what Mark 10 is going to immediately get up to. We see Jesus being the same nice guy that he's always been, but people are going to show up on the scene here and wanna know like, what's your tax policy going to be? What are you actually gonna be up to? And so our first people on the scene are of course the Pharisees. And they approach Jesus as he's walking. And in verse two, they ask him a policy question. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is a weird question. And it's a trick too, right? Because if Jesus says yes, then he sounds like he's pro-divorce. And if he says no, then he's at odds with the law of Moses, which is like a presidential candidate, like disagreeing with George Washington, right? So like you don't do that. So. They lay this trap, they ask the policy question, how does Jesus reply? Jesus says in verses three through nine, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus says, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this reason the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, so what's Jesus' divorce policy? Well, it depends on how hard your heart is, right? He says God's desire is for folks to be good to each other. But if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to be good to each other, then Moses gives you permission to choose selfishness if it means you stop hurting somebody else. It's more or less how it's framed here. Okay, that's an answer. But the policy checks don't stop there in chapter 10. In the very next section, Mark writes this. He writes, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Okay, now we're getting into child welfare policies, right? So what, what's that? And again, there's a game afoot. There's a trick here underneath the text because what the disciples know, the disciples who are turning these kids away, they're not just being mean to kids what's happening here is that they know that the parents of those kids are using these kids to try and get Jesus' blessing over them and over their households. If Jesus lays a hand on the kid, the hope is that the whole family is going to have some prosperity for a while. It's a bit like asking a politician to kiss a baby, but maybe like sprinkled with an atmosphere of lottery tickets on top. And that's why the disciples push these kids away this king doesn't have time for this greedy riffraff is more or less what their position is but that's not jesus's heart and so the text says this in in verse 14 jesus was indignant he said to them let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of god belongs to such as these truly i tell you anyone who will not receive the kingdom of god like a little child will never enter it And he took the children in his arms placed his hands on them and blessed them okay so what's policy number two right jesus is generous with blessings also there's something he's saying here about the way children seek blessings that should challenge all of the rest of us so we're 16 verses and what kind of a king is jesus shaping up to be well He's pro-marriage, we see that. He's pro-children, he's pro-taking your time on the way to Jerusalem, those all seem pretty good. But what's next? Where's our next policy? Well, this is the big one in the chapter, right? As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me at this the man's face fell he went away sad because he had great wealth jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of god so we're pro-family pro-marriage pro-kid anti-wealth that's a hard policy to build a kingdom around and there's this other tension here too right did Didn't we just hear Jesus say with the kid story right before this that we should all be willing to run to him, fall on our knees, and seek his blessing? Isn't that exactly the thing that the guy in the story does? Well, not quite, right? Because there's a crucial difference. The rich man doesn't ask for a blessing. What he asks for is permission to enter God's kingdom. But after that very permission is offered, it's the rich man who refuses it. Jesus is empathetic towards the man. The text says in one of my like, favorite verses in all of Mark that he looked at him and loved him. And then after he looks at him and loves him, he tells the man, he gives the man a straight answer. He tells him to sell what he has and to come and follow him. The door is wide open to Jesus' kingdom. And it's not an impractical door or a particularly challenging door to walk through. I mean, after all, what good is all the man's treasure if he's following Jesus where Jesus is headed, which is the cross in about, I don't know, like three weeks? You don't need it. But the man can't do it. Why? Why can't he go through the door that Jesus has opened for him? Well, it's a simple and it's a challenging answer, right? He's not ready to leave the kingdom that he's in. Everybody in chapter 10 wants to know what kind of king Jesus is going to be. They want to know Aragorn's tax policy. What are you going to do about Moses' laws? What are you going to do about riffraff who are just looking for handouts? What are you going to do? What's it going to take to get on your good side, to get into this new kingdom you're ushering in and to be important in it? But what Jesus is doing keeps prompting this different question, and that question is, whose king will Jesus be? Whose king will he be? These stories aren't actually about policies, right? These stories end up being about people. You wanna know the rules about divorce? What God wants to know is why you're asking. You wanna know whether there's enough blessing to go around in the world? What God wants to know is who you're really looking out for. You wanna know how hard it's going to be to get into God's kingdom? What God wants to know if, is if his kingdom is somewhere you really wanna be. The thread that ties these three stories together in Mark 10 is that Jesus is compassionate towards people in every one of these stories. And the kingdom that he's building is over our hearts. His responses in these situations point out that our real enemy, the thing that keeps us from that kingdom is consistently us. We struggle, we struggle to give up a world that we know is broken. And we struggle to give it up because we've learned how to live in it. For men in Israel, the exceptions for divorce and the law of Moses became this escape clause for getting out of expensive marriages when the wife's family put a drain on the husband's resources over time, because her whole extended family becomes his family and he has to take care of them. The damage divorce then did to the wife was supposed to be lessened by that certificate. Without the certificate, the wife is only an adulteress. With it, she can remarry, and that's supposed to kind of make it a little better that you like chose your wealth over her. For the disciples who given up everything to follow Jesus, leaving even the opportunity to bury their own parents, leaving their jobs, walking away from their whole life, a blessing given to a cute kid just because they ran up to him that then extends to a whole household must have seemed radically unfair, particularly as it's extending to people who gave up nothing in order to get it. So protecting Jesus ends up having a lot more to do with avoiding a threat to your own privilege, to what you have that you don't want other people to get for free. And for the rich young ruler, a lifetime of faithfulness was the price that he was supposed to have paid in order? it was supposed to be enough, right, in order to secure an eternal reward and allow him to then live out his days, the rest of his days, in some amount of comfort and peace and security. I paid my price, just confirm for me that I still have my reservation, right? We've been there, you've called, like the, I, I'm, I'm going to drive today, I picked up a rental car yesterday. Like, you do, like, you do have it, right? That's, that's the move the rich young ruler's making. Like, I paid my price, I paid my deposit. Just confirm for me that I'm on the right track, please. But if that's where you're coming from, is your heart really set on the coming kingdom? Or is it set on securing some kind of additional future beyond the one where you're already secure? Are you just chasing more security? Here's what I'm getting at. In these first moments, after his identity as the Son of God has been confirmed in Mark's Gospel, Jesus spends each of these three episodes clarifying what the focus of his coming kingdom is going to be on and that it's not going to be on his authority over creation. It is going to be on our choices. Will we accept a king like Jesus? And what keeps getting in the way of accepting is this kind of stinginess and short-sightedness that keeps one foot kind of out of the door. I think we read it, I think it's sent to those Roman Christians and I think it's still sent now to us because that's still where we are. We hedge our bets. We like prioritize trying to be realistic about things, we try to preserve ourselves. We try to be cautious. And these traits aren't bad. They are exactly the traits that help us survive in this kingdom. But they keep us or risk keeping us from Jesus' kingdom. So after Jesus turns the rich man away, there's this moment, right, where the disciples ask him. They get it. They, this is a moment where they see clearly the implications of what he said. And they say in verse 26, who then can be saved? And Jesus looks at them and he says, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. There's this incredible tension in who Jesus is and what Jesus is asking for. It can feel sometimes, I'm guilty of this, it can feel sometimes like Jesus represents this like eh, kind of compromise with the law. like He softens it a little bit for us. He's, his consistent kind of heart-first approach is kind of at odds with the legalism that I'm afraid of most of the time. So it's easy to kind of fall in this mode of thinking. He's like, is he, maybe he's saying we don't like really have to follow like every rule exactly the way that it's written right? There's a little flexibility, a little sensitivity. The truth, right, that we keep seeing is that what Jesus wants is not like a softer law. What Jesus wants is something deeper than the law. In fact, what he wants is the very thing that the law exists to try and inspire in the first place. When we were kids, I don't know, I grew up in this house. Maybe this is a little unique. I don't know how, how this goes in Maryland, but like, I grew up with like a lot of rules about manners in my home. Some of you are with me, like, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, please, thank you, say you're sorry, say you forgive, like all that kind of stuff. But when we fixate on rules, right, like when we follow rules, what we get is like a simulation of what our teachers or our parents want. We learn how to, like, appear polite, but is that where our hearts are? What we get is this simulation of what they want and what they actually want. The reason parents did that, the reason my parents did it, your parents did it, the reason our teachers did it, is not because they wanted us to be obedient. It's because they want us to be nice, like in our hearts nice. Jesus' kingship is meant to call us back to the heart of what we're made for. And the trick we see here in chapter 10, after the transfiguration, is that after a lifetime of like learning how to perform in the world, it is a hard thing to go back to the heart of a matter. It may even be an impossible place to go when you've learned how to perform and survive in this world. Not because our hearts can't change, but because we're legitimately afraid to let them change. We're afraid that if we do any of this, if we actually do this stuff Jesus is saying, we're just gonna be abused and exploited. So why do we get these stories when we get them? Why is this how Mark starts the stuff about after the transfiguration? Why is this where he goes first on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem? I think it's because this, because the center of the Jesus story, the actual center that the Roman Christians need to be reminded of is that God goes first. God goes first. Jesus calls us back to the heart of what we're made for but in the beginning, like where was he? In the world God made, God walked in the garden with us. In the world God made, we were safe because we trusted an actual companion to hold us. We loved without fear. We were generous back then without anxiety about having enough. And we get the transfiguration event before this call to wholehearted compassion and surrender because Mark wants it to be clear that God will face that unfairness and that cruelty of the world with an open and generous heart first.